You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On this episode, we talk about the war in Ukraine. We'll be talking about a recent MHI editorial entitled Ukraine Fights for National Self-Determination Against Russian Imperialism. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. The main segment of this podcast episode uh, is about Ukraine, Marxist Humanist Initiative's recent editorial uh, on Putin's invasion, but also due to the importance uh, of the war against Ukraine, the current events segment right now is also about Ukraine, specifically uh, an appeal from the Alliance for Workers' Liberty, which is a British Marxist organization, an appeal that they've issued called Unite the Left to Defend Ukraine. And we're pleased to have uh, on the podcast Daniel Randall, who will be conveying this appeal, and uh, then we'll be talking about it a bit. So welcome, Daniel. Thank you very much, comrades. Thank you for having me. So, yeah, I think that yeah, maybe the easiest way to introduce the appeal is just to read it out. So I'll do that. Comrades, Ukraine is being destroyed by a predatory Russian imperialism. The Ukrainian left and trade unions need our solidarity. Labour movement bodies, working class communities and numerous left wing individuals have mobilised in solidarity with Ukraine and taken a strong stand against Russia's invasion. But there is a crisis in the established organisations of the British and international left. It's a scandal that much of the Marxist left will not support Ukraine against Russian imperialism. Instead, these socialists evade the need to positively back Ukraine and hide behind a slogan that most of the world now agrees with, end the Russian war. Knee-jerk anti-Americanism, the idea that the US's enemies are our friends, the idea that any damage to the West is to the working class's benefit, is discrediting us. We need a socialist movement which sets its course independently by positive aims of working class emancipation, not just by negating whatever it sees as the main enemy. Of course, we oppose NATO, but NATO has not gone to war in Ukraine. The threat to Ukraine comes from Russia. The main risk from the NATO powers is of them pushing Ukraine into a bad settlement, which allows them to regain stable relations with Russia. In the UK, most of the Marxist groups are refusing to join the pro-Ukraine protests. The groups which told us Russia would not invade Ukraine now without a word of self-reproach or self-criticism tell us they are against Russian aggression, but they still refuse to positively back Ukraine. Some, in fact, still support Putin's Russia in this conflict or do so in practice by stressing only an end to war in general terms and saying that this must be done by negotiations based on something like Minsk II, i.e. by offering strong guarantees for Putin in Ukraine. We call for left unity around the following. International workers' solidarity to defend Ukraine. Support Ukrainian self-determination and Ukraine's fight to defend itself. Arm Ukraine. Russian troops out of Ukraine now. Down with Putin, defend the anti-war activists in Russia, release those that have been arrested. We invite individuals and the organisations of the left to sign up to this platform and collaborate with us on this basis. We propose joint initiatives, leaflets, statements, motions and actions. We urge UK-based activists to build the Ukraine Solidarity Campaign. 
Within this framework of joint political campaigning, we urge the left to work for clarity on the roots of this political crisis. Without clarity, we will repeat again and again the stupidity of refusing to back Ukraine, standing back while Mariupol, Kharkiv and Kiev burn. Solidarity, the Alliance for Workers' Liberty. Thank you. And if organizations wish to sign on to this appeal, uh, how do they do so? Um, they can email us um, at awl at workersliberty.org. Um, that's the easiest way to get in touch. These um, uh, uh, statements also going to be circulated on our website and via social media. Oh, very good. Uh, Marxist Humanist Initiative uh, has signed. I've signed as an individual. I was asked to do so. I'm very pleased to do so. We, you ha- we have our own position, but it's, you know, we're going to be talking about that in this episode, but it's certainly, you know, not inconsistent at all with this appeal, which I think is very good. And we've been trying really hard for more than a week now to uh, have representatives from the Ukraine Solidarity Campaign uh, on, the, on the podcast. What has the reaction to this appeal been? Um, well, it's, it's pretty new. So um, this discussion that we're having today is um, one of the first kind of formal reactions. We've sent it to a number of other Marxist organizations that are on a kind of similar wavelength um, on the issue. And they've told us that they'll be discussing it you know, internally within within their group. So we're looking forward to further discussion. Um, and obviously, the statement's been issued in the context of a kind of ferment. I think it's not too uh, much of an exaggeration to call it a bit of a political crisis um, on the left. And I hope that the statement can contribute to a reassessment, a reconfiguration, and a clarification, really, of um, some of the perspectives that, um, that, that the far left has tended to adopt particularly on international issues over the past period. Outside of a certain left orientations that have this knee-jerk anti-imperialism orientation, it seems like the the rational world is fa- fairly clear about who the aggressor is and the war in Ukraine and you know what side they want to be on, which is not Putin's side. But I mean, do you think there's a chance for persuading these people who have taken this ridiculous position of uh, making uh, apologies for Putin based on this instinct about anti-imperialism and anti-U.S. politics? Is there a chance of these people changing their mind in the face of rational argumentation or in the face of the horrors that we're seeing increasingly every day in the newspaper? Or you think people are just like dug in on this instinct of politics? Well, I mean, look, I think um, all of us on the left uh, kind of have to believe in the possibility of a sort of fundamental ideological transformation and shift in consciousness, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing what we do. Um, So, yeah, I do think people are capable of reconsideration and of changing their minds. Having said that, look, we're under no illusions that issuing this statement is going to lead to some kind of Damascene um, conversion or or series of um, revelations whereby... Uh, groups that have adopted this kind of campist, sort of Stalinoid type approach um, that we're talking about are suddenly going to, you know, take full account of that and, and, and reverse their line. But as I said, you know, this statement's issued in the context of a kind of political crisis, political ferment. And I think that those are moments in which people can um, people can reconsider and, and, and ideas can change. I mean, you know, there's, I guess there's an extent to which it feel, you know, it's, it's easy to feel quite helpless and powerless in, in, in the situation. 
you know, we're not in a, a situation like the one of a century ago where the um, revolutionary left was a force with very significant social weight, uh, capable of kind of contending for hegemony within um, mass labor movements. So there's a bit of a temptation to just sink beneath despair and think, oh, you know, what does it matter what the far left says? It's a marginal and irrelevant force anyway. But I think if we, if we as a left are ever going to rebuild out of that marginality, that has to start with political clarity. You know, obviously, there's a practical imperative too. the statement addresses that there's a, there's a very urgent practical imperative around, um, you know, material solidarity work with left and labor movement forces in Ukraine. But there's also an ideological imperative. And I think if the far left is going to rebuild out of marginality, you know, the revolutionary class struggle left I'm talking about, then thrashing out the politics is is, is a kind of necessary part of that. So we, we hope that the statement can c- contribute to, to, to that kind of um, discussion and, and ferment on the left. Yeah, I mean, really, since uh, before the uh, 2016 U.S. election, when the threat of Trumpism, you know, was right before us, uh, MHI has been calling for, you know, a complete reorientation of what it, the idea of what it means to be the left, and that the left has to stand for freedom and human rights for, for, for everybody. And, you know, in this kind of moment where the so-called knee-jerk anti-imperialist left, that they're not really anti-imperialist, but where they're kind of divided, okay? Uh, There's, you know, uh, confusion and dissension within their own ranks, and as the appeal notes, they're trying to hide behind lowest common denominator formulas like end the war. So what they're trying to do is always unite, and now they're trying to unite around the lowest common denominator basis to keep their forces together. Uh, I I think it's very significant that this appeal is called Unite the Left to defend Ukraine. So uh, I think that's very important. What we need to do is to unite the left, but we can't just unite it around, you know, some wishy-washy pap that's acceptable to the the enemies of human freedom um, and the enemies of national self-determination. So uh, I was very pleased to see the title of the statement. Yeah, I mean, I think something you've said there, I think, really speaks to the heart of what we're trying to do and, and the contribution we're trying to make to the discussion. And it's something that definitely um, goes well beyond the kind of immediate issue of Ukraine. You, you talked about the, the imperative for the left to stand for, you know, consistent democracy, self-determination, freedom, working class self-emancipation, et cetera, et cetera. And I think really this kind of division, that this ideological division that we're talking about on the left could really be summarized um, in terms of that conception, you know, the idea that the left needs to define itself positively in favor of these of, of certain things versus a view that the left should basically be defined negatively uh, in terms of um, ne- just negative opposition to um, whatever it determines the kind of so-called main enemy is. And therefore, any any other oppositional imp- impulse or, or agency against that main enemy is kind of ordained as, as an agent of progress. And, you know, there's a, a whole series of issues where you can see this this similar kind of dynamic played out. Um, Syria is obviously um, one that uh, is, is 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 talked about a lot, and in a lot of ways, those um, dynamics kind of thread through into the Ukraine crisis as well. And yeah, what we're trying to do with the statement is is very much appeal to the organised left to to re-anchor itself in that kind of positive self conception um, around you know fighting for those kind of foundational principles um, rather than seeing itself as a movement merely of, of, of negative opposition and ordaining 
any other opposition, even if it's opposition in the name of a reactionary alternative, um, as, as progressive. Well, thank you again, Daniel, for being on the podcast. Again, that was Daniel Randall from the Alliance for Workers' Liberty. Thank you for having me on, and it's good to be, um, good to be in touch. Up next for our main segment, we're going to talk more about Ukraine. Today is Friday, March 11th, and we're going to be discussing an editorial which MHI released on March 7th entitled, Ukraine Fights for National Self-Determination Against Russian Imperialism. Joining me as usual on the podcast is my co-host, Andrew Kleinman, as well as our frequent uh, guest, Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. And am I right that, that Anne and Andrew, you were the principal authors of this editorial? Yes. Well, I hope listeners take the time to read through the editorial. I think it does a good job of laying out some of the fundamental issues that are at stake in this war in Ukraine right now, as well as differentiate what MHI is saying from some of the other voices we're hearing in the left right now. There's a lot to get through. We probably won't get through all the details, but people should read it on the website. Um, so, but let's just read the opening couple sentences, um, and then we'll get into the weeds, right? So it starts off saying, Marxist Humanist Initiative opposes and condemns the Russian military invasion of the independent nation of Ukraine. We oppose it without reservation, without qualifications or excuses, without the whataboutism, such as, but what about the role of the U.S. and NATO in all this, that some of the so-called left continues to put out. By now, many of our listeners may be familiar that some of the commentary on the Ukraine war goes into some pretty long asides about the role of NATO expansion or U.S. foreign policy in the background behind this crisis. Some of the commentary almost overtly implying that, you know, Putin is just a rational actor responding to this provocation. But that's not the position taken in this editorial, right? The first section is called Russian imperialism versus national self-determination. It's not Russian imperialism versus U.S. imperialism or Russian imperialism versus NATO, right? So maybe one, one of you or both of you can talk about why their perspective uh, focuses on uh, national self-determination as the counterpoint to Russian imperialism. Well, we're trying to show what is really going on here in Marxist terms. And at, at stake is the principle of national self-determination. And we emphasize that over and over again. If a people f believes they are a nation and wants to act together like a nation, then they are a nation. And they have a right to determine uh, their course of action and that's the point and this failure to see this seems to me to be the main thing underlying the criticism of our position or the criticism of uh, of the Ukraine even defending itself but to us that is crucial and that's why that's in the first section uh, I had thought when I started drafting that there was going to be a lot of objection to the term Russian imperialism, so we put Russian imperialism and national self-determination uh, in the headline and first to be discussed. But nobody seems to be uh, seriously saying this is not imperialism. Uh, there's, uh, it's absurd to say that Ukraine invaded them or NATO invaded them by being too close to the border or whatever it is. It's 
good old-fashioned imperialism. It doesn't matter that the Soviet Union once called itself socialist. It's gone, and it never was socialist anyway, and there's plenty of imperialism there. You know, as soon as uh, Lenin died, the Stalinists began taking over these uh, little countries like Ukraine that they had promised to free. But it was a big principle with Lenin, and it is with us, that every country has the right of national self-determination. Yeah, I just want to add that uh, this is an issue that we discussed uh, in an earlier episode, and we were discussing Raya Dunyevskaya's uh, view on national self-determination for black people in the United States. And she said, look, you know, it's a nation, in this case, it's not people who want to be territorially separate, you know, but they are, they have the right to express their national aspirations, and these are national aspirations, uh, in the manner that they see fit. And she invoked Trotsky, Leon Trotsky, and said, the question of who is a nation, it's up for the people to decide, it's not for outsiders to decide. And we talked during the uh, the episode about how that was a break with a lot of thinking, for instance, Stalin and people like that would like try to uh, give you objective criteria for what is a nation and what is not. They have a language, they got territory, etc., etc. And this is a, just a very, very different way of thinking, which is people can decide for themselves. Not everybody is happy with our use of the word Russian imperialism. I sent a link on um, a mailing list that I'm on, and somebody wrote to me privately, said, Russian imperialism, ha, you know, and you call yourself a Marxist. Well, yeah, I do. I think what a lot of people have done, who call themselves Leninists, uh, is say, well, when Lenin uh, analyzed imperialism in his pamphlet, he said that the imperialists export capital, in other words, they engage in foreign investment, and the traditional thing was the USSR didn't do that, okay, didn't export capital. But that was just Lenin describing a key feature of the imperialism of his time. He didn't give us a special definition of imperialism, he, he used the standard idea of imperialism, which is not specifically Leninist, and it's in fact, you know, there have been empires and therefore imperialism well before capitalism. So to any normal thinking person, okay, what Russia is doing is imperialism. Uh, it's imperial conquest and subjugation, and the, the only thing that's blocking recognition of that nowadays is we still have this really, really harmful belief that there are two camps in the world, the so-called imperialist camp and then the, the anti-imperialist camp, in other words, pro-U.S. and anti-U.S. forces. And, and this is imperialist way of thinking because it hides the mass struggles in each country against the rulers. There are two worlds in each country, and when you accept that there's the, the U.S. interests, there's the, the Russian interests, and we got to split the difference for world peace, you're selling out the Ukrainian people, and you're selling out the Russian people, and the American people, for that matter. And some of the accounts from the left uh, about this war and their attempts to do what they describe as providing context, it almost creates a an image of the world in which the only actor with agency is the United States. And everything else is just like a reaction to U.S. actions. 
So in this kind of vulgar way, it makes like Putin just seem like he's this acting, I guess, like logically in uh, as a response to the aggression of U.S. imperialism or NATO expansion or, or whatever. It just seems like such a laughable way of understanding global politics. And I'm surprised that intelligent people on the left would argue things like this. But it's I've seen it from many people now. An inability to like let the Russian state or Putin have any like agency or responsibility whatsoever. I mean, there's always some uh, pro forma condemnation of of Putin, but it's always like almost like an aside to the real argument, which is that Putin is just somehow only uh, understandable as the result of the only, the only entity with agency in global politics, which is the United States. I don't even know how you go about countering that because the whole idea is so absurd on its at face value. But I like the way this editorial brings up the self-determination of the Ukrainian people as a part of the subject itself, right? Because in that picture that we hear from some people on left, it's like just completely erased. Like Ukraine is a nation full of people that might not, not want to be neutral towards Putin or might not want to side with Putin. I mean, you hear these things on the left where people are like, it's like, oh, you know, maybe Ukraine should remain neutral so that we can pacify Putin so he can meet his legitimate security concerns. As if the people who live in Ukraine are supposed to be like pawns, like give up their right to like be free of the fascist and authoritarian influences of Putin in order for other people, you know, have some buffer between them and, and Russia or something. It's just they're not treated as like real people with any uh, agency or, or legitimate concerns as political actors. Exactly. That's that's an extension of this question of national self-determination is um, letting people uh, develop their own country in their own ways and um, not being pawns of anyone, but also not being uh, straightjacketed by what the world expects of them. And uh, I think what we're still suffering from 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union is this concept of there are only uh, two worlds. There's uh, U.S. with its imperialism and there's everybody that the U.S. uh, opposes for whatever reason. And those are the two camps. And it's campism that's left over from the Cold War days but that was long ago and a lot of things have changed and most specifically as as you just pointed out Brendan the US is not the major determinant of everything that goes on the world uh, on in the world that um, denies everybody else agency it certainly denies the um, imperatives of the mass movements fighting for freedom all over the world and it just uh, keeps us in the straitjacket, mental straitjacket of how to think about the whole subject of what's going on in the world. Uh, there is a, still a segment of the left that goes along with this, just as a segment of the right that uh, you know has the old uh, happy warrior, uh, cold war mentality or hot war mentality. And there's a good part of the left and the right that still want to make the major opposition in the world between the U.S. and Russia, which is is frankly ludicrous. I mean, Russia's no economic power. They were in very bad shape before this thing started, and now their whole economy is going to be destroyed. 
Uh, so they're a weak little country. What they have is a militaristic leader and a lot of weaponry, including nuclear weapons, that makes it very dangerous. And the idea that uh, this is okay and we must do whatever is necessary to placate Putin is just, it, it turns your stomach when you see him, his uh, army and airplanes slaughtering the Ukrainians, literally. In terms of, you know, how do you counter this attempt to characterize the world uh, as if the only entity with any agency were the U.S. government or, you know, its, its puppets. We try to do that uh, kind of specifically in the editorial. Uh, we quote Thomas Pally. He's co-editor of the Review of Keynesian Economics and former uh, assistant director of public policy at the AFL-CIO. And he said, well, look, this was right after uh, the invasion began. He said it was inevitable the U.S. and NATO backed Russia into a corner and there was nothing else that they could do but but invade, you know. So it was like, you know, the U.S. is to blame here. Russia is just instinctively reacting. It couldn't do anything else. So what we do is really just take this apart and show that it was not inevitable in a variety of ways. And the, the key, again, is the imperialism the acceptance of imperialism, the taking for granted of an imperialist division of the world as the key, okay? Because there is nothing inevitable about Putin ruling Russia and calls for him to go and the, the struggle against his war. These are real things right now. And so to say that it was inevitable is to tell us that Putin ruling Russia is inevitable. And, and that's just a plain falsehood. There is a possibility of a different world and a different Russia. So there are a lot of ways in which this could have been prevented. And not everything can just be said to be a, a, a reaction to what the U.S. did. Putin is a ruler of Russia who turned 180 degrees its geopolitical orientation. He fought off enemies, he poisoned enemies, he killed opponents, he suppressed dissent and still, is still doing so in a big way. Okay, None of this was ever inevitable. And to say it's inevitable and to look the other way is to take the side of Putin's imperialism against another imperialism. Part of this whole tragedy is what's happening uh, in Russia itself. I don't mean the fact that they're going to be very seriously hurt by the sanctions, the ordinary Russians, but I'm talking about the fact that the government has shut down all dissent. They arrest anyone who goes out to demonstrate, and there have been thousands who've gone out anyway, and now they're sitting in jail. You can get 15 years just for saying that this is a war going on. It's supposed to be a military exercise, and you have to call it that. Uh, the uh, last independent newspaper was shut down last week, rain, and all the people who are trying to to dissent on the internet or whatever are, are being shut down and, and persecuted. So that's a, a side effect. And I'd like to get back to this question of who do you blame and whose fault is it? And is it really the U.S. and NATO's fault? Because I think there's been a lot of confusion on that issue and maybe our editorial requires some clarification. We did say that Trump and Trumpism has aided 
Putin. And it has, I think, by giving him the green light to do whatever he wants, even to muddle in the U.S. elections. And certainly even pre-Trump, the U.S. and the rest of the world did almost nothing when he seized Crimea in 2014 when he bombed Syria in aid of the dictatorship there more recently and many many other uh, imperialist things he has done and by not uh, trying to stop him the U.S. has aided him. However this question of who's responsible for this war is quite another matter to blame that on NATO because they have uh, military bases near the border with Russia that's absurd. I mean, you of course we're opposed to NATO, but that's not the issue. If there's going to be a NATO, it's going to have military bases, and if countries have borders, which is another issue, might say they shouldn't, then they're going to be uh, opposing camps on two sides of a border. So it's hardly that the U.S.'s fault for uh, particularly this war for making Putin go to war against Ukraine as he needs a buffer or something or he needs to uh, conquer more people. It's just crazy. All the the, the soft on Putin so-called left is, is preventing us from thinking. They're like, oh, well, Russia has these legitimate security concerns. Yes, and Ukraine doesn't, right? It, it, it's always, these are not even real people. They're just pawns in a global struggle between the one camp and the other camp, okay? That is acceptance of imperialism. That is, therefore, imperialist thinking. It's unacceptable to revolutionaries, and, and we've got to call it out, and we, we've tried to in this editorial. As, as Anne said, now you can you know be jailed in Russia even for calling the war a war instead of a special operation. And I think it's very important when you look at what the, the so-called left is saying to look at how they characterize this invasion. Are they even calling it an invasion? And if they're not, what we see is that they're tacitly condoning it and on Putin's side. I mean, in the editorial, we, we note that the uh, Stop the War Coalition, a, a British group, right after the invasion started, they didn't even call it an invasion. They called it the movement of Russian forces into Ukraine, which sounds to me like, you know, a lot of these people were talking about January 6th. So, you know, the, the entrance of people, pro-Trump people into the capital. It's the same kind of thing, right? Yeah. You called to our attention yesterday, Brendan, a piece by David Harvey, and he says something like, well, this is not to excuse the actions of Putin. He wouldn't even say what actions we're, we're talking about. I mean, it's as if Putin picked up the, the wrong fork at dinner or something. So there's a lot of delicacy in the way these people deal with it. And the refusal even to call it an invasion when it's clearly an invasion shows that they're really in Putin's camp. Again, it's this bipolar mentality. There are only two camps, and you have to be in one or the other. And so if you hate the U.S., you have to be in the other, whatever it is, no matter how tenuous its connection to anything revolutionary. I mean, it's even if you thought the Soviet Union was socialist, which we did not, it has no connection to that. 
In fact, Putin's blaming Lenin for the creation of Ukraine because he, because he believed in national self-determination. But I wanted to say one other thing about the security. They need the security. Aside from the fact that assuming only one side of the border uh, needs protection from the other, the whole concept of uh, fighting wars by marching in and taking the land is very out of date. Um, Russia's marching in and taking the land because he wants control of the country for geopolitical reasons, but not for Russian security. These days we can send missiles from halfway around the world or, or more, and you can make war, war on someone without getting very near them at all. So what does it mean that you've got to have a, a neutral country on the other side of the border? It's, it's meaningless and it's silly. It's a euphemism for it's legitimate for Putin to stop the expansion of NATO. That's what that's what they're they're really trying to communicate to us, I think. Yeah, well that's what this whole whole thing is about. Certainly we agree that, that NATO is a terrible thing. We didn't bother to mention that in the editorial because we didn't want to take the ground of those people who were trying to make it Russia versus NATO instead of uh, Russian imperialism versus Ukrainian right to self-determination. It goes without saying that, that all the militarists on all sides of every country are bad and evil and we don't like them. The question is, who do you look to now for ideas about liberation and actions to help those who are struggling for liberation? And that's what needs to be focused on, not all this uh, political stuff, in my opinion. Another angle that people are talking about a lot is opposition to the war within Russian society and to what extent it might be <clears throat> threatening to the status quo in Russia. Uh, well, it's hard to know because they have been silenced. We can only hear from um, the people who have fled or, or were always reporting from outside the country now who are trying to give some view of the massive protests, which I understand are still going on in spite of their jailing everyone and giving them draconian sentences. They're still going on, but they're not as big as they were a week ago or so when, when one hoped they might possibly grow to the size of a revolution since um, taking Putin out would be the best way to stop this war because you'd also have a new day in Russia. It's, it's going to be very rough, but I think that the, the opposition forces, the pro-democracy forces, are sensing an opportunity here. You know, we've heard from Navalny recently. Karamurza was uh, on TV yesterday explicitly calling for regime change, which means getting Putin out of power. And, I mean, that's going to be rough, but I think people are sensing an opportunity. The war is not going well for Putin. Uh, he's got opposition even within his own government and the military. Some oligarchs have even come out against the war. There's mass opposition within Russia. The opinion polls tell us that uh, less than half of the uh, population supports the war, and that was uh, a, a while back. And a lot of people don't even know what's going on because of his lockdown against uh, any independent publicity. Uh, his position is a lot weaker than it was, and uh, depending on the strength of the sanctions and depending on how the war goes, 
a lot could change very, very suddenly. I, I mean, I'm, I'm reading things like the Putin regime has six more months. No, nobody, nobody, of course, knows. But things could change very, very rapidly. Yeah, they also told us COVID would be over in two months. <laughs> that's 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 true. Nobody knows. Yeah, and of course the tremendous Russian propaganda machine is telling their people that it's because the U.S. hates them and wants to hurt them that the sanctions are hurting them, and not because of anything to do with Ukraine. So it depends who you believe. People have to have a have a break with their. Russian propaganda brainwashing to to see what's really going on. Remember, the television is completely controlled. Most of the internet now is controlled, although the young people know how to get around it and get uh, internet from elsewhere and find out what's going on. But the old people apparently is watch television, and that's all they hear 24 hours a day is about uh, how the evil and NATO and U.S. are. Uh, being so cruel to them and are behind the fascists in Ukraine so it's it's going to require a sea change in Russia that's for sure bigger than what's already happened another thing that the editorial does a good job of ta- discussing i think is the danger of a multipolar world often on the left there's sometimes this knee jerk intuition that thinks any challenge to U.S. hegemony is inherently good since U.S. imperialism is bad. But as the editorial points out, a multipolar world is potentially even more dangerous and terrifying than the status quo. In this potentially multipolar world, we're facing issues of nuclear warfare, warfare on the European continent, massive economic upheaval across the world. Right, and this has everything to do with the the question of multiple poles of capitalist power. When you had Russia and the U.S., a bipolar, which is therefore multipolar world, that's when we had this this threat of nuclear annihilation in a big way. Once the the USSR collapsed, you had a single pole of world power, U.S. hegemony, then the threat of nuclear war annihilation subsided to a large degree and now that we've got this multipolarity again and we've got not only u.s imperialism but russian imperialism now we're back to the competition between multiple poles of capital and they're nuclearly armed so this multipolarity is like it's not only has nothing to do with social revolution you know and marxism it, it's it's not even improvement uh, over the status quo it ju- it just means there are more powers with nuclear arms that we have to worry about their imperialist ventures too and china certainly iran and other places that are eyeing or meddling in many other countries and competing, competing in, in uh, for world co- capital, uh, resource control, markets, all the reasons that capitalism uh, goes to imperialism, and all these countries are capitalists. There's no socialist pole. People just have to get that idea out of their minds uh, in order to understand what's going on, and any of these countries could could get aggressive and it's only in a sense by chance that the U.S. has this rule against going to war for anyone but NATO. There have been plenty of other times when they 
could have gone to war and it's extremely dangerous and Andrew I don't agree with you that that the nuclear threat ever really abated it was people stopped talking about it for a long time because uh, mutually assured destruction policy had worked well for so long where everyone was afraid to start a war. I, I, don't, th- I don't think it abated. I think it subsided. In other words, it didn't go away. But when Russia was not in position to be threatening, there was less threat of, of, of nuclear war. It's just recently come back in a big way in the past couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, of course, of course, there, there's North Korea. I understand that, but and a lot of other places. In other words, there's that doomsday clock that the uh, Bureau of Atomic Scientists, is that the name, puts out, and it's it's never been less than two minutes before midnight or doomsday. It's always been extreme dangers from from nuclear war, and the more countries that have nukes, the the more dangers and that has to do with the multipolarity also you're going to have everybody standing off against everybody it's it's really dangerous stuff i i i, I agree with all of that I'm, I'm talking more like the population of finland and sweden quaking in its booths and you know monitoring the the news you know like hawks because they're worried about what might be happening on on their soil at any moment. We didn't have that for for, for a while. But let me just say on on the on the multipolarity thing, the invasion of Ukraine really shows this. I think. What kind of alternative is is multipolarity? It's like okay, you're not under the subjugation of an imperialist power. You're under the subjugation of multiple imperialist powers. How is that an improvement over anything? Which leads us to our slogan (laughs) that we need to mention over and over, which is that uh, the alternative to war is not peace. It makes no sense to call for peace in a capitalist world. It's only going to be temporary. It's only going to be until competition somewhere heats up again as so much that war breaks out. So we say the alternative to war is not peace it's social revolution that's what we need a different world a different world order coming out of uh, different relationships within each country and that's crucial that's crucial and it's crucial that we discuss that so we're not just saying oh everything's terrible we're doomed we can't stop russia we can't stop the u.s no there's always this possibility of genuine social revolutions and if one would break out in the u.s boy would that make it easier for everyone else in the world but one breaking out in russia would also be a tremendous inspiration to the rest of the world and we have to uh, have to work for that in every way we know how toward the end of the editorial there is a section entitled the struggles against trumpism and putinism and it points out that Trumpism and Putinism are basically two sides of the same coin or two facets of one of the same problem, that they're both manifestations of a rising global tide of authoritarianism and rejection of liberal democracy. And of course, we know that Trump colluded with Putin to win the 2016 election and that the Republican Party has been nurturing their ties to the Putin regime for a while now, along with other right-wing currents in the U.S. politics. I was surprised in in that David Harvey piece that we briefly discussed earlier. 
after spending the whole piece t- talking about all the bad things the U.S. and NATO have done and not really mentioning Putin at all, like it's not even using his name for most of the piece, Harvey says, quote, none of this justifies Putin's actions any more than 40 years of deindustrialization and neoliberal labor suppression justifies the actions or positions of Donald Trump, end quote. I was fascinated because it it's clear like he's making the same kind of argument to excuse Putin that the soft on Trump leftists used to excuse Trump. I mean, he's saying this argument doesn't justify Putin's actions and that neoliberalism leads to Trumpism argument doesn't justify Trumpism. But he is saying that one causes the other and therefore the real problem is not Putin or Trump. It's this other thing that caused them, right? So it's sort of like a a half-hearted attempt to back away from the strength of this sort of position in which only the U.S. can cause Putin's, only neoliberalism can cause Trump's. But it's the same sort of logic that we see in both in both scenarios. And this is, I guess, like the playbook for parts of the left for how they understand authoritarianism in general, whether it's national or international authoritarianism, that there's this knee-jerk instinct to not let authoritarianism be a threat in its own right, to not let authoritarianism be like a force on the political stage that is legitimately threatening, but only have it be like something that is caused by or a stand-in for or a symptom of neoliberalism or one side of the imperialist equation. It sometimes appears like someone's giving you more context so you can have a better understanding, but in really it's like a lack of understanding because it's an attempt to explain things where there's only one force in the world that can ever cause things to happen. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the, the script got written a long, long time ago uh, by Noam Chomsky. And basically all these people are following the Chomsky script. Uh, and Chomsky has turned this into some sort of principle or doctrine about how to do politics. And it's basically, here I'm going to be an apologist for one side, but not actually be apologist in the sense of like, echoing their talking points or saying anything good about them, I just say, well, you know, we're not going to excuse Putin's actions, but, and then what you do is you deflect away from what they do back to your hobby horse of attacking the side that you want to attack. Now, the fact is that although this is very clever, particularly for people who regard the world as being in two camps. If you spend all of your time attacking the one camp, you are acting in the service of, hello, the other camp. So you are being pro-imperialist in your actions, whether or not you say rah-rah Russian imperialism or not, you are hurting their enemy and that is helping them. And unless you can find your way out of this to a genuine, maybe not even revolutionary, but at least progressive, independent stance and way of viewing the world where you're not locked between the one camp and the other camp, you're always going to be pro-imperialist in your thinking. And that's where so many of these people are, unfortunately. Yeah, and uh, Brendan, you put a comment on uh, the editorial on our website talking about Harvey and calling it a classic example of whataboutism that Andrew was just describing. 
that uh, it's always more important to talk about with terrible things the U.S. did than whoever you're criticizing. But I don't know that whataboutism is the really right name for what's going on here. Uh, Putin's now reached a stage in the war where he's just doing mass killing of civilians, blanket bombing, uh, cutting off food, water, heat and everything else just to, to starve them. And then if, when they try to flee the cities where he's doing this, they shoot everyone who's trying to get out. This is a whole a different level than your ordinary minor incursions and palace coups and things. This is outright murder. And sure, the U.S. did it when what comes to mind, if you're old, is Vietnam the uh, My Lai massacre in Vietnam 50 years ago uh, when the Americans just killed everybody in the city to pacify it, <laughs> supposedly. But that's, that's the analogy. What's going on in the left is, um, is a question of shifting blame, not just... I mean, so is whataboutism, but I'm saying it's another category of offense to say that the U.S. caused this invasion and the U.S. provoked this invasion and all that sort of thing and not to hold the Russians responsible when they're doing the, the military acts and the murders. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. 
Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. We, we could have stated this more clearly. We, we had to write the, the, the editorial, obviously, on a timeline, kind of in a rush, and the, the facts are continually changing. But, uh, I mean, in addition to there being an ideological affinity between Trumpism and Putinism you know, as two uh, facets of this rising tide of authoritarianism, and in addition even to the collusion, a great part of why Putin wanted Trump in office and interfered in the U.S. election and tried to get Trump elected and succeeded is that he has wanted to weaken U.S. power and to weaken the power of NATO. And the power of the U.S. has waned. I mean, it was on uh, its alliances were close to breaking under Trump. And things that have happened, Trumpism, and partly because of the social media campaigns of the, the, the Russian government and things like RT and there are other propaganda channels, they have fomented division among the American people. So it's not just that they're trying to promote a particular ideological line, they're trying to create and they've been very successful in creating division and chaos. And this division and chaos, according to Alexander Vidman, a foreign policy specialist, were instrumental in preparing the ground for this invasion. Vidman points out that when did the preparations for this invasion begin? Very shortly after uh, January 6th. Putin is looking at this and saying, look at what's going on in the U.S., how weak and divided it is. This is a golden opportunity for us to make our move, which could have come before, but now here's the opportunity to make uh, our move. And he may have been saying that against critics or people who had doubts within the, the Russian elite military government and so forth. What was going on in the U.S. and is still going on in the U.S. may have convinced the, the, the doubters to go along to some degree with what uh, Putin, uh, with Putin's designs. I just want to mention that, that the world's reaction is very strongly in favor of Ukraine. There are protests beyond the U.S. and the U.K. and, of course, within Russia, but there are protests all over the world. I've been writing to some of our young contacts to ask what's going on on your campus, et cetera, et cetera. I just got a note from a Laszlo who was uh, on this program who wrote the most recent article on our site about the tankies in Ireland where he goes to school. And uh, it was pretty depressing from what he's also told us individually about how they dominate the campus groups and what the idea of Marxism is. But that's not what's happening now. So this may be one 
desirable byproduct of this horrible war is that people are opening their eyes. Uh, he, he just wrote to me, our campus's response has been good from the grassroots. The Eastern European Society of Trinity organized a protest at the Russian embassy. An organizing group has been set up following that from which initiatives range from further direct action Petitions to a very successful humanitarian supply collection sprang up. From the tankies and left reactionaries, there have been rumblings of whataboutism. But in general, Putin's brutal invasion of Ukraine has been rightly condemned from grassroots groups to the college itself. And I imagine we'll be hearing um, more and more about such protests. So that's good. I just have to say that it's not just the so-called left that we're always criticizing for being so accommodating to Trumpism that they become practically Putinites and some have become. It's not just that, it's the pacifists too. I've been so shocked at some of the stuff that comes to me over the email from code pink from the stop the war group in uh, in the uk the very large uh, anti-war group there that comes out of the anti-nuclear um, movement decades ago uh very very wishy-washy um, russia out of ukraine nato out of europe uh, u.s out of europe i mean co-equal and in fact before the actual invasion when they were trying to stop the war from starting the nato out came first russia came second now since the invasion at least they put russian troops out of ukraine first but it's still wishy-washy it's no to war and no to um to u.s domination and there's just no way out of that kind of dualism. It just uh, leads you from one dead end to another until people start to see what the nature of revolution is, that it's the masses rising up, taking their lives in their own hands, using their own brains, preparing themselves to rule a different kind of society. Without that kind of vision, you're just not going to get anywhere. It's so dramatic, the scenes and videos and, and, and images from the Ukraine, and it's so obvious who the aggressor is in this situation that it's just hard for me to imagine that this sort of hesitancy to condemn Putin is going to have much sway over people beyond like very small groups of ideologically confused people on the left and peace movement. I can't imagine. Um, it just seems like these people are going to make themselves very irrelevant very quickly. I, I, I entirely agree. I mean, they, they've had a very bad position for a very long time, and now they're going to own it. The unfortunate thing is, I think that they're just going to double down and get more extreme, kind of like similar, you know, to what we've seen in the Republican Party. When things don't go right, they just get more extreme. And I think it's because they're, they're playing to a base, just like the, the Trumpites are. You, you said earlier in the podcast, you know, like a lot of things this kind of soft on Putin left is saying, you know, they're hardly believable, they're, they're, they're inane, etc. These people are not stupid. Uh, Thomas Pally, uh, Katrina Van Hoevel, David Harvey, these are not stupid people by any stretch of the imagination. They know their stuff is, is, is weak. They're playing to a base. Okay, they're playing to a base 
that wants you know it's probably not very sophisticated and 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 wants this kind of stuff if if you're if you're new and you're rejecting the status quo the the first reaction the first negation you know of what is is just to take the other side i don't like uh, the u.s imperialism so rah rah putin a lot of really puerile stuff like that those are the people that they're playing to and I, I think that's that's their top priority, actually. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies. 